in the furthest reaches of our known universe. Safely in a little cave, far from everything, welcome to the Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger, a big warg to all of you. Uh, just a reminder, Big Nothingness, my latest album, as well as a full visual presento, is available everywhere you can find stuff. If you go to davidhuntsberger.com, there's uh, a link to both the Vimeo version and a YouTube version you can find links to the album anywhere you buy stand-up comedy. Just search either my name or Big Nothingness. This podcast is one where I sit down and chat with interesting people, typically scientists uh, or artists, ranging from the most highly educated to people that may have not even finished uh, middle school or something like that. It just depends on how they've applied themselves in life and what do they know. It's a big world out there, and it's uh, nice to learn a little bit about the things that other people know. Uh, and if you want to support the show beyond uh, just listening, or maybe you've rated or reviewed or subscribed, those are all great things that help the algorithm. You can also uh, help on Patreon, patreon.com slash spacecave. I appreciate any and all kinds of support. You can also buy some merch at thespacecave.com if you want to just do a one-time thing that you get to take away like a, a hand screen printed poster that I made. So whatever you want to do, I'm just glad you're here. I hope you like the show and I hope you enjoy this chat. I thoroughly did. This is part two with Dr. Dan French. So we left off talking about the most polarizing figure of the 21st century, probably, or the most talked about kicked off social media a figure i try to really not bring up or talk about on this show because i just think there needs to be a break or a place where it's kind of a safe space however he ties into a lot of the things we've been talking about which is messaging or the software being sort of broken and just playing dirty just block them just smear just but to me it goes back to that thing that appeals to people of like even though the crazy hair and the orange makeup and the cartoonish general look is a very cultivated uh, aesthetic. People seem to enjoy that he kind of, the the rhetoric or the software of him is the least rehearsed. When in actuality, of course it probably isn't. It's a learned behavior that like, this gets what I want, so therefore it is applied rhetoric, but it appeals to people because is it a magic trick or a card trick that is, man, he just says what's on his mind. No filter for this guy. I love it. That's like me. Is that, where do you fall on that? Is he just psychotic or is it a, an effective way of bullying through the software in a, in a way that people just don't do because of moral things or something like that? Yeah, there's a, there's a ton to Trump and people, rhetoricians are writing books on him and all that to try to explain him a little bit. I've got a little bit different ex, uh, perspective than a lot of rhetoricians because I've worked in entertainment mm -hmm. and Hollywood and I've seen Hollywood production and um, what that brings to it. Trump is really 
one of the very first entertaining politicians, like entertainment trained politicians. Mm -hmm. Reagan was trained by entertainment, but he was just trained to be a dramatic actor, essentially. And he was good at it. That's why everybody loved uh, Reagan was he developed he could deliver a really good dramatic speech. And he but he he did the traditional politician thing of gravitas. So his ethos was about I'm serious, I care about America, I'm strong. And it was a lot of, you know, classical rhetorical structures in politics about we've got to make America great again and all, all these things that Reagan started. But he was a dramatic actor. Trump is a reality show trained entertainer. Yeah. And if you look at his tactics, it's literally just reality show entertainment tactics. Mm -hmm. But he was the first one to import those over into politics. And that's why people like him. They like entertainment. They hate politics. Right. They've always hated politics. Yeah. <laughs> we used to never even watch the speeches like the State of the Unions and things like that until Trump imported entertainment. Conflict oriented entertainment yeah which is all reality shows are right blow it up 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 <laughs> people just keep showing up for the blow-ups the explosions it, i mean there's a whole other <laughs> it must be for everyone for, i think of the vermont tree tapper to get away <laughs> from all that to be like man humanity could have been so much more if we had nourished or nurtured this other part of our thing, like philosophy, like the Greeks. But maybe we found that boring. And people, I know the, I, so many of my friends are extraordinarily intelligent. And I would include myself in the second thing I'm going to say, which is that in their minds would like to watch and uh, contribute to things being made that have some substance to them, some thought, a little bit of integrity. And we all kind of watch dumb stuff from time to time or go like, oh, man, you see this? Yeah, I shouldn't have. It was stupid. So we are that at our core. It, the Vermont Tree Tapper is like, I only read books and I don't read any pulp crap. I read dense things because I want my brain to always be challenged. But for the, most, for the rest of everyone else, I think what they're saying is the day-to-day existence it challenges your brain so much and i have it on i need to turn it off and the way we sort of tend to turn it off i guess is 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 watching stuff like you just described like man this car accident or this train wreck or this just these wolves are eating each other i can't look away and that becomes who we are as humanity and it is such a bummer and we're all contributing to it yeah i'm not an anti-entertainment person i'm also not really an anti-social media person what i what I am is these are still new formats. They're far too intense for human brains. Mm -hmm. We're not we're not made to resist, you know, like I've been watching TikToks lately and reels because I was curious as to what what is actually drawing everybody into this. And just the uh, people dancing to the same song over and over, you know, country song or it's a pop song or whatever it is. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, I could watch. My God, <laughs> it's kind of interesting to watch an ordinary person try to do this thing or do it, and there's something engaging about it. So all that electronic technology, it's now reached. You know, it started with old TV and black and white and all that kind of stuff, and then it, once it got to CGI and high def and all these things, your brain doesn't have a chance. Yeah, like you go and try to read a dense book now and see how painful it is. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely struggled with reading and I chalked it up to a number of things, but I mean, so many people have talked about that, that 
our brains have kind of been rewired. I'm sure there have been plenty of books written on just that exact concept. Uh, th- but I don't want to give into it. Don't you have that feeling of like, I, I like this idea of humanity being not what it is. I want it to be a little less yelling at each other digitally through avatars. I want it to be a little less like... Well, then you know what you need, David. What's that? You need rhetoric training so that you can force it to be what you want it to be. <laughs> I want to go. The cool back. thing about rhetoric, and a lot of people, I'm not a control freak, but I hate to see mismanaged or badly managed or incompetent things. Mm-hmm. Like I can't handle it. And so, rhetoric at least has an architecture of weaponry that you can use to change that stuff, to go in and be like, we're getting really, really contentious and stupid in our politics. Okay, we would all agree. Like, if you watch one of the Trump rallies, they they've adopted this kind of entertainment aesthetic of photoshopping him on yeah. the buses and trucks, and doesn't make any difference what they you know change him physically or make him you know superhuman, and they love it. And you, <laughs> it makes perfect sense in entertainment and memeing and photoshopping. Yeah, it's like yeah. But the rationalists are all like, how could you put his body on or his head on Sylvester Stallone's body and think right. that's real? Yeah. It's like, no, we don't think it's real. It's entertainment. So there, I do think like the troll gets a, a mischaracterized name. I don't want to say bad or good, but like to me, the initial, like the origin of a troll was just like, well, this is all stupid. I'm I'm going to revel in how dumb it is. I'm not going to take any part of it seriously. So yeah, like it, it, to put this the president's face on a Sylvester Stallone thing and knowing that it'll piss people off because they think I genuinely think of him as my hero or like imagine him that way. That's funny to me. So then there's a troll aspect to that that everyone should be able to at least kind of identify with. Like that person's just being a goof. They're not romanticizing this person now maybe some of the people watch that and go yes give me five minutes i'm going to the bathroom for undisclosed reasons and you'd be like (laughs) oh (laughs) well irony and your generation knows loves thin irony Mm -hmm. thinner the better yeah and you feed on it like guinea pigs you know going around and nibbling is oh my god the more the better it's like give it to me that's why you can enjoy, you know, shitty movies and stuff like that because you can watch it ironically, and so that is a higher order mental processing to be able to enjoy and see irony, or even just the trace of irony or the absence of irony is really why people enjoy bad stuff because there's no irony in it. Yeah, and you add the irony in as you watch, like you are the source of irony. It's not in there. Yeah, and so you create this fusion irony between you and the and the text. There's a lot of really cool stuff about this in literary theory. But for people who don't do irony, who don't run that mental software, that Trump image actually has a glorification in it. Yeah. That they can experience. (laughs) Finally, someone did what I was thinking in my head all day to get fixated, to get... Like everyone does, you know. You think back to a period where you were just obsessed with some... You know, everyone had like a pinup poster on their wall, some heartthrob or whatever. And then now if that person got a DUI and their mugshot's terrible and that person goes, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about them in 25 years. But every single day for five years, I was wondering what they were doing. I was calling a hotline to hear their voice. I was cutting <laughs> out pictures of them. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of this period that we're in, even though it's with adults. And adults who 
have sensible haircuts and go to church and preach to be very conservative and these things that don't yeah, line yeah, up that, with this obsession. Remember, like, so I, I wrote a series of things about Trump back when he was in office about trying to explain him to people and why he's a superpower within politics right now. It's not that he's a genius or any of that stuff. He's importing new things into politics mm-hmm. that you usually don't get. And so just the fact that he's simple, that he's easy to read, that, you know, that he's a, he's not this kind of high, highly developed language and all kind of stuff that you normally get in politics. Like as soon as Biden won, he delivered one of the most majestic presidential inaugural addresses ever. It was very elevated and very high ideals and all the kind of stuff that you expect from traditional American politics versus Trump's inaugural address, which was we're going to tear this place down. <laughs> like I'm tired of the way y'all are running it. And we're going to tear it down together. And that kind of simplification of the rhetoric of politics, mm-hmm. again, that, that works very well with the, uh, you know, it's still only like 20% of this country is educated in college. Yeah. And you were in college. How many people, how many of those people were actually stupid? Yo, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I could go into, having a degree or a certain level of education doesn't mean that you're going to be intelligent on every other thing in life. And that's so frustrating because we all know people that didn't even graduate high school that are like genius level gifted at something. They may not be so good at Scantron tests and whatever, but the other thing they're good at, maybe it's making those grills on those pickup trucks and welding or something to that effect where like yeah. they understand yeah, intuitively. Yeah, they, would, they wouldn't even need to look at the dial on the welder to know like, oh, well, this, this is this type of steel. It needs to be at this heat. Here we go. And you would be like, that's, that's just incredible. You just learned that? Like, yeah, I just figured it out. So people have all... Anyway, I want I would you brought up a thing that I thought of an example and this wasn't the one I left off the last episode with. I have I have a second thing, but this one this is different than the baguettes, but a similar scenario. You're in line somewhere. Maybe you're like voting or something so you got to wait and it's a few booths and everyone keeps getting this sticker and they pull the back of it off and the trash can is 20 feet to the left of where anyone is going. The door to exit is to the right. So they all look around, and then they just place the waxy back part of the sticker on the table. But little gusts and breezes of people walking by are just fluttering them off, and they're all over the floor. No one is walking the 20 feet to the left to the, to the garbage can. So you watching TikToks, you're, you're, the rhetoric you apply is that, like, I'm fascinated by this. The other side, it could be like, your little chimp brain's having fun, isn't it? You're, you're letting your, your kind of human-based desires to just have your mind captivated by something silly. You can't allow that to enter in. And we all do that. We go, ah, what I'm doing here is I'm observing. I'm seeing what people really, what they're into. In reality, you're like, I like this. This is, this is great. And the next one starts in five, four, three. And you're like, I'll let it play. And then pretty soon you've gone through 20. So you can, you can navigate this way where you're elevated you're doing exactly what everyone else is doing i think everyone does this in line though though you look around a line of people everyone is looking at their phone the moment you put your phone in your pocket you're like look at these chimps i think everyone does that because you've talked yourself you used rhetoric to say like i'm something different than these (laughs) these chimps that we all are so anyway you're looking at the garbage can i would say the solving of it 
To me, I would go over, probably if I'm honest, grab it, pull it over near the table, and so one of the workers would go, oh, hey, thanks. And I would want to say, I didn't do that. I, it was driving me insane. This isn't a helpful thing for anyone else but me. I, I can't stand to see this. But how would you handle it? And what? how would you say rhetoric applies to that scenario? So I'm not exactly sure which part of that scenario you want me to apply it to, like to you. I think I'm thinking of your thought process as you're watching it. So in in the way that we watch things and like a troll might watch it and be like, I'm loving this. I love when the stickers flutter off the table. This is joy. Whoever put that trash can over there is hilarious. Someone else might be watching it, not even thinking about it. They're just looking at someone voting and they hate them. They can't stand how long they're taking. They're not even seeing the stickers things. So in this, you know, general scenario where I, I guess I'm asking you personally, like, what do you think you would do in that situation with the trash can? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Good question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> good question. I guess it's not a good question, but I think well, I'm it, trying to, I'm trying to come up with an, a real answer. Like I can, this is one of the things I talk to people about a lot when I teach argument and I teach logical processing. Mm-hmm. Like it's real easy to give an answer and make it sound right and make it sound like you believe it. Mm-hmm. But but you don't. <laughs> You're just saying like this sounds like a sweet answer. Yeah, this will this will work. This answer will work. Yeah. So I a lot of times like again, logic requires you to slow down and really process something so that you can try to get to an accuracy. Yeah. It's very difficult to do. Um so I mean I don't live I don't live my life constantly just in the abstract auditing of other people's rhetoric and their experience. Um, I, I like to experience the world too. And this is like with comedy, you, you know, this, like if you want to actually enjoy a comedian, you have to shut off the analytical apparatus. Cause you know what they're doing. Yeah. Like in Chappelle's last special, I enjoyed the closer. I enjoyed watching the art of what he was doing. He made me laugh maybe two or three times which is all that I usually get. Although I, I really like him mm-hmm. and I appreciate what he is and I, I like the comedy, but it doesn't make me laugh. Mm-hmm. Like he never really super surprises me, which is what makes me laugh. Yeah. Because when I don't see something coming and it's just like, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> and so I can look at it and, and if I wanted to go back and break it down and people, are, you know, I, somebody asked me about this the other day on my podcast, like, well, what do you think about you know, the controversy around Chappelle's The Closer and all this stuff. And I'm like, the media can only cover, for the most part, drama. Yeah. Like, it doesn't cover comedy. And so it will go into comedy and recover whatever drama is there and make that the angle of the story. So is there actual fury out in the world in bulk about Dave Chappelle and that special? I have no idea. And neither do they. They have not gone and quantified the trans community about 97% of them are fine with it and 3% aren't or is it 50 50 or is it the other way around, but they know, ah, pull drama out of there, which is, and people are yelling at him. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes the story. And I'm not against the media either for that. Like the the media can't do everything. It's got to pick an angle and it picks dramatic angles because it's a drama medium. Yeah. It's not puppies and things like that. It's, it's about the drama of life. Yeah. News. And so 
it's fine that they did that, but don't ever stop and go, okay, well, that's the entire story. Now let's focus on this. I hate it when I let somebody else set my agenda to what, for what to think or what to think about. And so I, I could care less. I'm not, I'm not interested in Chappelle's relationship with that, with the trans community. Um, what about this trash can? So you're setting my agenda and you're like, okay, think about this, Dan. Uh, what would I do? I would probably do what you did. I would maybe, I have two modes. Either I change things, which is my fixer. Mm-hmm. That's why I like rhetoric. Rhetoric mm-hmm. fixes things. It's an active uh, agent in the world. Or uh, I just withdraw back in my head and I'm like, I'm not even here. I'm thinking <laughs> about other stuff. <laughs> so you could you could be in that same line and someone's yelling and screaming. Maybe there's even someone with a flag of a candidate they love yelling, you're a sheep, you're all sheep. Would you want to engage that person or would you just, I'm not even here. I'm just going to go over and fill in my bubbles and get the hell out of here. You don't exist to me. I've only got so much energy to do rhetoric. And like, I was never into politics. I studied entertainment as a structure. That's why I can analyze Trump differently Mm -hmm. than a lot of people. I've always really been fascinated about how we do entertainment and how we reach you know, what is a great piece of entertainment? How is it constructed? Mm-hmm. And so like when I watch something like Fleabag, I immediately like, wow, that is mixing deep pathos of somebody who is responsible for their best friend's death with great, you know, high irony, high sarcasm, high toxicity comedy. Yeah. And I just never see that done. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I want to study that. I could care less mostly about politics until it became a problem, which is what Trump and the right has done to America. They've made politics important. <laughs> and it's awful. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like you said, try not to talk about him because you it dominates everything because it's dangerous. Yeah. We've never had to fear our politics. Like even when Bush and Cheney and those guys, they kept trying to tell us to be afraid of them that, hey, they're starting wars. I'm, yeah, but it's in the other countries. They're spying on you. Yeah, but, you know, I don't do anything wrong anyway, so what? And so it was hard to make us afraid of them. But Trump, it's fear, 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 and you can't not be afraid of him. So now everybody's suddenly have to pay attention to politics, and we hate it. Yeah. I think there's twofold. And and I've given not as much thought required to this as I probably should, but... The accountability of like they were doing those things in the past and going back to your guy Reagan where I, that period was sweet because like, oh, oh, the president's on TV. It's, what's it been like six months? I didn't even know he's still alive. This is great. I wonder what he yeah, has to say. Right? That was a fun That's period. how we like to do our politics. But then behind the scenes, it was drug cartels and paying for these contras and problems in the inner cities with crack that stemmed from that that are still plaguing society as we know it. So gigantic. Yeah, criminals. Criminals. Just, they, but they were the main criminals. They were bad people yeah. and criminals. telling people, we care about this. We do the right thing. We're making things great. And in reality, the, the reverberations from that, whew. So now being aware of like through Twitter, through we're shutting down this pipeline or we're keeping an eye on, what are you doing over here? There is some accountability that I have to say would have maybe been useful in the 80s. Yeah, I think um, when Trump, and Trump, I sometimes describe him as the Republican Party was there and democracy was there. Like he didn't build any of it. He, he's the clown who jumped behind the wheel of the Porsche mm-hmm. 
and you watched it happen like during the debates suddenly they were all they were all up there and ted cruz and marco rubio and all these jeb bush who were like hey we're in line our cabal has decided we're in line and trump's like oh no 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 try to beat entertainment <laughs> and he just got up there and insulted everybody and became the biggest character and it's like oh he's stealing your party yeah and you know that's what he did uh, and again that's what a mobster does they come in they take over your existing business they ruin it they you know burn it down and then they move on to the next one yeah so that's again very typical very understandable behavior for what he was coming from but this idea that you know he has at least woken the sleeping political giant in this country liberals turned out in force and voted him out mm-hmm. of presidency and i assume they're still going to be feeling pretty damn active in 2022 it's like <laughs> uh, you know we've got two fake democrats who are holding up the entire agenda of the liberal party and the moderate <laughs> liberal party mm-hmm. we got to get more politicians on our side so yeah and it goes back to your dumb movies that people love too and that like people are aware of oh we killed the bad guy time to turn around and put our guns down and chit chat a bit <laughs> what's happening behind us every that's been just done to death in movies so people are aware to i guess be attentive or kind of diligent um you mentioned your daughter though and, and like walk, talking through kind of the process and so i i thought of kind of a thought experiment that was hypothetical or facetious in that say that she was so woke she's part of a group that's like dad people are born left-handed and we just don't respect that enough restaurants play we're calling we're marching we're organizing we're calling left up we're calling this movement left up and we're getting everything equal 50 50 you got to have your glass when you sit down at a restaurant always put on the right that's rude left up means that we call people out we video them we tell them they're a piece of shit if they put it on the left or on the right and then they gently set it to the left and we all high five you hear that and you're like oh boy there's a lot of there's some holes in this strategy at the root of it might be a good idea yeah like we kind of forsake our left-handed brethren so what would you what would you try to guide her into with rhetoric if she came to you and said that We've had I've had a lot of these discussions with her. She was talking about being in the quad at her university and some older Christians being there trying to recruit people and <clears throat> using the normal recruiting tactics of like insulting the young, mm-hmm. telling them they're going to hell and all this stuff. And so she engaged uh, with logic and then got mad. And I'm like, yeah, I said that's fine. I understand, but. You're the daughter of a rhetorician. So make up your mind if you want to be a rhetorician or not. Rhetoricians pick the most effective technique, not the technique that feels good to them. Mm-hmm. I need to know what is going to be a good technique with this person. And so I'm like, you know, create a relationship, like a very quick faux, even an authentic relationship with this person and ask them, so why, why is this important to you that you're here? Why is it important to you to talk to? Why is Jesus important to you? But doesn't and this tell kind you the of story? Doesn't this go against though? You're kind of saying in politics, the idea of civil discourse has gone, and by by this group being there, they want conflict, but then trying to assert some civility into it. Wouldn't wouldn't that be 
I, I was surprised to hear that was like the move you, for her. Uh, it was just one suggestion of don't let the other side set the agenda. Oh, gotcha. Don't let them set the tone. Don't let them set the tactics. Don't let them take control of strategy. If they're there to make people mad and engage, then don't get mad and engage in a different way. Change mm-hmm. the topics. Mm-hmm. Like instead of them talking to you about what you're doing, talk to them about what they're doing and not to challenge them or contradict them. All those techniques are really bad. They don't work with the right. They don't work with over-engaged people. Mm-hmm. You can't contradict them because they are so triggered emotionally. They can't handle it. <laughs> so ask them for information. Say, you know, tell me, tell me about your life. And they will calm down and they'll start talking to you. And you can actually make some headway. But that's just a trained rhetorical technique that's way more effective than your natural expressive inclinations. <laughs> I have two uh, anecdotes to go along with that that I think you as a rhetorician uh, might enjoy. The first, this is just me uh, celebrating my own doings, but it's also the outcome I think was something you would like in that, you know those billboards like 1-800-FOR-TRUTH and it'll say like, there's proof of God, I have it, call me. Or like, <laughs> you know, it'll show the evolution chart and like a big X through it, no way. And so I called them and I, I talked to this guy in Kansas and I, tr- I recorded it. I wanted to release it for this show and I did it through, this is five years ago. So I did it through this uh, call recorder app and it just butchered it. It was all chopped up and only recorded like a few minutes of it. But he was, he had that tone you're talking about, very triggered, very, well, yeah. and I was just kind of calm and like exactly what you're saying, just asking him, where does that come in? Or, hey, why, why is it this? And as we worked through it, like there was a member of their church who was clearly gay and he would get up in front of the congregation and apologize for his sin of homosexuality because it had flared up over the weekend. And I, I just thought it was so funny. <laughs> when that happened. So sad for this guy to be doing it. But I also wondered if he was kind of a troll just out there. Like, right. Y'all, it got in me again and the spirit took me and the, I went huh. to Bruce's house and whatever. I, I thought like, it would have done no good if I started, you know, getting a, a, a raised voice with this guy. But he was, you know, kind of trying to justify like the Grand Canyon being 6,000 years old. And the more he talked about it, he's like, all right, all right. You, you know, that that is one. And it was kind of interesting. Like I wasn't doing a gotcha thing to him or anything. I was just listening. But as he spoke through it, he was he was at least accepting of the idea of maybe finding some common ground with me. But then it gets to that end point, which always feels a little empty where they're like, well, we've had a good chat. Can I interest you in some literature or a phone number? Like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, and he even kind of said, like, it doesn't sound like you're going to come around. I was like, probably not. But I think we left on okay terms where we left as two people that could, could just agree to disagree and move on. The second anecdote was uh, I went to school in Colorado, Fort Collins, and this was a few months after Matthew Shepard was killed near Laramie, Wyoming. I don't know if you're familiar with the details of the story, but it was gruesome. It was so yeah. violent and awful. And the Westboro Baptist Church had scheduled to come to the football game. And to get to the stadium, you had to walk across this field. And they were like middle of the field set up with all their stuff, signs. But our school paper must have been edited by a a rhetorician because it said, hey, this is going to happen. What we're asking you to do as a student body is ignore them. And so we quietly walked across this field as they're yelling and bullhorns and all this. And every now and again, someone would be like your daughter. They'd go, I can't take it. And they'd turn and someone would grab their (laughs) shoulders and go, no, 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 and keep walking. (laughs) 
and we they just were powerless. It was so great. Yeah, it's a good tactic. But man, wouldn't it have felt great to just yell in their faces and finally get them to go, all right, I'm wrong. I'm a jerk. I'm a bad person. I mean, is that what we're hoping for in those situations? Yeah, I think one of the things, again, the idea of going the rhetorician's way and develop walking the path of a rhetorician, it's not enjoyable. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, oh, I have all this power in the world. Persuasion is grind. It's unpleasant, especially if you're going into people that you know, are deeply against what you, where you are and have been this way for a long time and most of their beliefs are incredibly impacted within experience and woundedness and trauma and all these things that make people end up believing weird things intensely it's not fun mm-hmm. like and that's why like you know you were asking me earlier like would i engage a guy a crazy guy in the, a line of po- politics like no because it's it's too much work and it's unpleasant <laughs> I don't have a lot of emotional energy to give out to the uh, difficult per- to persuade. I talk about this stuff in the abstract, and I teach people how to do it. In fact, one of the little side programs that I'm building within the uh, Win Blue thing is Convert One Conservative. Because mm-hmm. everybody gets locked up by looking at things like the Westboro Church, right? And it's like, ah, oh, this is a whole church. It's like 100 people, and they're all crazy, and... Look at all the 75 million that voted for Trump and nah, I can't do anything. I'm like, quit looking at the herd. Mm-hmm. Just pull one of them out and do like what you did, which is create a, a respectful relationship. Don't sit there and argue with all their beliefs. Just say, you know, well, what about this? And, you know, can we talk about this and be respectful so that you create a baseline relationship? And if you do that, if, and I have a very specific conversion process, which starts with asking for information, doing biography gather, which is just tell me about yourself and why you believe these things. No judgment, just like a psycho, just like a therapist does. And then create some type of uh, relationship with them by communicating with them over time. And then once you get those two things in place where they know how to communicate, they, they actually trust you a little bit, they can start telling you about the real stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can do conversion. So you can only do that with very few people because it takes a lot of time and effort and it's hard. They're constantly getting triggered. They don't trust you. You know, they're not a stable civic discourse state. They're terrible with logic. And there's a lot going on there. So just pick one. If the 90 million people or however many it was that voted for uh, Biden would all pick one crazy relative or friend. And just work on them for the next two years. Yeah. You'd never lose another election. The one ingredient, though, that I think is, and maybe I know this from movies, because it is just batting like a thousand percent. Two people are trapped in a lifeboat. And at the end of it, when they've had some time to just deal with each other, whoever they are. And in this situation, it's like a very uh, fire and brimstone person and a very flamboyantly gay person, potentially a person even of color, like a double whammy that this fire and brimstone person dislikes. At the end, as they crawl onto the shore and they're saved, they're arm in arm. He goes, this guy's okay. Okay. (laughs) He's my brother. And you're like, why did it take that for you? Where was this love or compassion at the very beginning? So 
if my neighbor is putting up a bunch of signs and I feel like, oh boy, I better try to convert this person, am I approaching it as a rhetorician with love or am I going in like a stealth assassin, like I got to get this guy in a lifeboat because then I can like work him? Well, again, ethical rhetoric is not about manipulation. Okay. It's about transparency of your goals and your techniques and your the things that you're doing can't be nefarious techniques. They can't be unethical techniques. So you're just playing that game. So you need to go and think, I'm going to create an authentic relationship with this person, which you know how to do. You do it all the time with friends. Mm -hmm. It's just now you're suspending all the kind of, you know, the the feelings of negativity that you would have towards this person so that you can create a good relationship with them. Yeah. And if you create that good relationship using all the interpersonal, I also have a thing called nice suasion, which is using interpersonal techniques to create relationships with difficult targets, mm -hmm. uh, then you can do a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how tra how transformative that is because most people that get to that level of triggeredness or hate, or, or whatever they have, it's because they haven't had good experiences with those communities. Mm -hmm. And if they get a good experience, it just destroys all their abstract ideas and feelings about this human, because now you've got this concrete experience. He saved me from a burning building, and he <laughs> can sleep with whoever he wants. It always has to be like that, like you say, like, the good experience has to happen so that if it's like I was eating lunch and this parade came by and everyone was all oiled up wearing hardly any clothes, I'm madder than ever at this group. You're like, ah, oh, that was for you a bad experience. But had you been involved in maybe building one of those floats or, you know, like Garth Brooks had a great quote. I think it was during COVID where he's like, we just politics has gotten so contentious. You know, when you're at a football game or something and you high five a person next to you because your team did well. You're all loving on each other, and you don't know what their political leanings are. And our families, I think we would all say, at least used to be that way, where you could go person by person and be like, I can find one thing I disagree about with every single person in this line, but it's certainly not enough to make me not love them. I love this person. I love all these people. But then over time, as these political things start to become more and more pronounced and like the only things you talk about are these things that are just stewing under the surface, a lot of people were like, I had to cut so-and-so out of my life forever because of this recent political yeah. period. And that's, that's so sad. Well, again, go back to the thing we, we talked about earlier about the culture. Uh, media and media experiences are about intensity. Mm -hmm. You don't watch a boring movie. <laughs> right. You know, you don't you don't go back to TikTok uh, and just favorite the ones that you hate or right. that you didn't enjoy. Mm -hmm. It's about intensity. And so politics, since politics is about conflict at its heart, about we can vote this way or this way, two party system, you have a very clear set of choices. They've just amped up the conflict because it's now a media product. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that everybody feels these ways has been in imported into them again by media by rhetoric they can't control it they don't see that it's been imported and so if you're going to change it you have to have a rhetorical strategy for going in and doing that and something like one-on-one -on -one conversion is a really good strategy that may be strong enough to counter 
electronic rhetoric, mm-hmm. which is really powerful. And I do this all the time when people I talk to people from other perspectives and like, well, they'll be like, check out this YouTube about but this talk. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't go to somebody else's electronic persuasion. Yeah. Like I'll, if you want to tell me about it, I'll listen to you. Yeah. And they're like, well, I can't say it the way they did. I'm like, well, then you need to practice it. You need to learn it <laughs> because URL persuasion. That's not fair persuasion. It's much more produced. It's much more worked on than the way human beings do argument. Yeah. So don't ask me to access the better persuasion, <laughs> you know, to prove your point. Yeah. I, uh, I got a lot of those. I, I would, there's a certain type of person it felt like that would just send them with no, not even a commentary, just link. And then I'd watch about a minute and be like, email them. What's up? What are you trying to say to me? Did you watch the video? <laughs> like, why is it always this type of person? I think in my experience in the, the group near me, they, they sort of struggled with uh, spelling and grammar and things like that. And were maybe a little embarrassed. So just sending a link was the cleanest way for them to be like, I don't, I don't risk anything. And that's a big part I would guess of rhetoric is like, how do I not risk anything? You know, or, or is there a time where, you know, putting a little risk there or it's false could be good. I, going through this whole conversation, it's so weird to me that like when, when I first saw rhetoric, especially seeing that you had a PhD in it, I was like, I don't, I'm so unfamiliar with that topic. And then I like podcasting because over the years, like emotional intelligence, um, that was a big one that came up. There's maybe one other one I'm, I'm blanking on that I thought like, what? I'd never heard that term, you know, like I, the more you learn about it, you're like, oh, I think I can, I think that's always been there. Something I've been aware of, but just not with the specific parameters or names. And rhetoric is something, the more I learn about it, I'm like, I love that. And I'm always bringing up beer because it does to me encapsulate a lot of it that the companies that mass produce this garbage use this rhetoric in their ads to shit on the companies that hand make their beer in this way of like oh you rode a unicycle to get here and you have a backpack full of hops you're not gonna like this beer it's for real men put up the tailgate and floor it get on over and get one of these beers yeah but then those companies buy up all of these craft breweries and sell the be- the unicycle beer as well, it drives me insane because people, I heard someone one time in a passenger van, we are leaving a set, he gets in, he, he's the driver, he goes, yeah, I had a few beers last night. And he goes out of his way to go, you know, Miller Lite, nothing fancy. I'm like you guys, I'm regular. <laughs> and I was like, it's working. The stupid ass rhetoric in these commercials is really getting through in such a, so you said like you can live in the abstract or not be too close to it but it really has to be difficult sometimes to see it working to see it working in ways like that well we live in rhetoric storms i look at them as rhetoric storms a lot of times and you've been through hundreds and thousands of them they're everywhere everybody Mm -hmm. has to build a rhetoric storm around what they do if they're going to be effective at communicating and persuading the public how many beer commercials have you seen in your life yeah, you know Whew. a lot, mm-hmm. and all the way back to, you know, Miller Lite and you know, all these things that become these cu- cultural I- icon messages that people end up quoting, and and, and the it gets some deep penetration into the culture. People start using it as pop things, and they recycle it and all this stuff. It means it's a powerful rhetoric because it's coming from an incredibly rich corporation who's hiring 
really strong, they don't call themselves rhetoricians a lot of times, but uh, advertising executives yeah, and great artists and great writers. And they end up with this super potent piece of rhetoric. And now I'm supposed to somehow de, you know, de-trigger, de-trigger that fight that super produced thing that came from this mega corporation with the best minds and the most money in the world. And it's not even human. It's got <laughs> color. It's got images. It's got produced sound, music. And I'm, I'm supposed to compete with that? Yeah. Like TikToks are a good example of this. The only reason TikTok is popular is because they figured out how to use popular music. Mm-hmm. Like they got the licensing so that people can put high, excuse me, highly uh, produced, super professional, catchy music on their dances. Yeah. They didn't write that music. If they had to write their own music. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would be watching TikTok. <laughs> so like it, it's never it's never a fair fight. Rhetoric is never a fair fight. Everybody wants fairness in our public discourse and all this stuff, but it's never a fair fight. There's always huge competition. There's very strong structures coming at you, and you're just this individual who, like you, has learned a lot of informal ideas about rhetoric in mm-hmm. your life everybody does we all develop theories and tactics but you've had very little formal training in it right and my point is always you know you're going up against some real competition here you might want some formal training to up your game yeah because it's going to be necessary i when you were talking in the beginning i i said to myself oh, i remember that term that's really fascinating and it was the group that uh plato hated and i keep want to say philstow's Sophists? Sophists. Good gosh. All right, I'm writing that down. Uh, But then selling their knowledge to the wealthy, that's exactly what you just described now in that, hey, I I understand how to communicate our message. Me and my PR firm or my marketing team or whatever it is, we will we will come to you, giant beer company, giant conglomerate, and we will we will help you master your market share. We'll help you take it up X percentage, and then they can do that, which must feel good, but it also must be such a bummer to know that like so much of our society is just that big end feeding on the smaller end. Even though the smaller end makes up way more numbers, it lacks, like you just said, lacks the training, lacks the awareness, the knowledge, the education. How do how do we fight that? Well, it goes back to the, all these concepts of brain drain. The best and the brightest aren't doing the most important work. They're out trying to make money. Mm-hmm. And the fact that our greatest artists constantly get co-opted by advertising. If you ever watch ads, they're amazing art. They're amazing oh, technology. I worked in production and some of the set design, the art department stuff, you know, they would say, I remember one in particular, TD Ameritrade, guy who did like Beetlejuice or a movie where you're like, oh yeah, big giant moving things. It was so fun to be a part of, but then knowing it was for this cheesy ass, like, ah, that's a bummer that it's for this. Yeah, but they know, again, the lords of money, the lords of capitalism know that human beings like really great messages and only artists put together really great messages. So they just hire the best ones. So instead of the liberals having the greatest artists and thinkers build their messaging to counter somebody like Trump, they get, you know, the second, third team. <laughs> they, they really do. Like, I remember watching the debates and Trump's an insulter. 
And mm-hmm. his insults aren't even particularly good. They're pretty simple, and he just repeats them over and over. Yeah. But I was watching Hillary Clinton thinking, man, if she just had a really good shock insult comic on staff or on retainer to write her 15 great lines to hit uh, him with. You know what she was? And you and I both know this. And because we've talked about this in this episode, the older style, like cruise ship, work your club, <laughs> get off at exactly 45 minutes. And that yeah, yeah. set is rote. It is in there. You know, like, hey, this guy knows what I'm talking about. You're always pointing down and right, never anywhere. Else. It is, you're just a, a wind-up machine. There are comedians that have done 30 years of that and they're good at it. And they know exactly where all the beats are. And then all of a sudden, there's like someone in a hoodie pulling notes out of their back pocket going, oh, yeah, what, what about this? And just riffing with the crowd. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, there's a competition between those two comedians. And they're like, hey, person doing it for 35 years, riff something. They're like, that I can't I don't riff. I, mean, I can't riff. <laughs> I've never riffed in my life. What? So it was such an unfair fight in that perspective. It was. Yeah. And. The cool thing about her is that once she got out of the uh, actual political confi- confines, listen to her podcasts and stuff like that. She's pretty quick, pretty witty. She's smart. Like why, why didn't, didn't you do that? Yeah, why not do it? But again, like you, if you're if you only know when I'm on stage and these lights are on, I can only do it this way. I'm a ventriloquist. I worked with a ventriloquist once who spent the whole day talking to just his hand. He was just always practicing, couldn't break out of it. So she. She seemed that way to me, or like just too hard of a muscle. Well, go back. This is why, again, Aristotle's original definition became my book, which is 21 Colosseums. You have to, if you're going to be an effective rhetorician, you can't just get great at one because when that goes away, you're, you're lost. Mm-hmm. You're ineffectual. So you need to practice across the range and be ready because you're going to run into competition that does things like narrativity or, you know, sort of. Uh, Trump's thing about entertainment very well and you're going to have to figure out how to break that and if you can't then you're going to lose yeah and I don't like to lose so (laughs) I'm like here's all the 21 let's all look at it if they're doing this this means import all these techniques because you now have to fight on that arena or you have to get them out of that arena and make them fight somewhere else there was a I won't even say this was like a C.S. Lewis thing you know because he was like very Christian and either he's referencing something. I think it's a book called Mere Christianity that a friend had me read. And I don't. I, I might be misremembering this because some at some point or another, a, a team, a group that was trying to like really hold on to their Christian values and ideals said, "And don't listen to those who will come in and try to apply their intellect. They'll try to switch." I thought that was so funny. Like their intellect. You wouldn't want someone being intelligent and talking near you but they were looking at it like hey hey they're gonna have all these tactics they're gonna they're gonna try to sway they're gonna make some good points yeah yeah it's weird that a rib ripped out of someone's body made another person don't listen to them we believe this stuff and so that group that is being talked to in that scenario is the one that's gonna be watching tv now say five years from now or say in a year from now 21 coliseums takes off you're being interviewed on all the big news outlets and I'm that person going, it came, it was a rib and it turned into a person. Don't let the intellect in. But I know how the other team's working. And so my version of rhetoric is they're exposing their playbook to me. We have Dan French here. He's explaining how we can appeal to them and use rhetoric. I'm watching that as a rib believer going, see, they're doing it. They're trying, they got a playbook. They're trying to use tricks and all this crap. They, they gave their whole plan away on TV. Dan French was there. He's their guy. And you become like enemy number one. And how to take them down. 
how would you handle that? Uh, you know, I'm just a rhetorician. <laughs> just a caveman. I, I don't care which side wins. I tell people a lot of times they ask me about my politics. I'm like, well, which side is better for comedians? Because that's that's what I would prefer is to live in a nicely friendly comic world where I don't have to analyze what everybody is saying and I can just have fun and do jokes. Uh, the right is not particularly good with comedy. <laughs> Conservative people are pretty uptight about the comedy you get to do. Yeah. And so I typically you know, prefer the liberal approach to things. I don't care if it's Democrats or the right, but you know, if I vote for the, the funniest, the most comic-friendly, the nicest, the people who are not going to uh, arrest me for saying things in public. And so, you know, I, again, I, I kind of take their agenda and I change it. But if they want to make me an enemy, I'm pretty good at avoiding being people's enemy. Mm -hmm. That's, again, a rhetorical art. But like, I'm not going to let you make me your enemy. Are you going to, but would you go on these bigger platforms? Because bigger platform means more TikTok views, more shares, more this guy, this guy. You know, how does that mean you'd have to avoid it and just kind of be in some level of obscurity? Or would you recognize like it's a 15 minutes thing? Yeah, they'd hate me for 10 minutes and then the next week they, they're on to the next thing. Yeah, if I start, and that's kind of the next phase of this, I've been building content for the first year of it, but I'd like to move into the discussion. Mm -hmm. the national discussion because they need it. They need rhetoricians. I sometimes call this as building the uh, rhetorical guardians of the galaxy. My goals are pretty clear. Like my, my main goal is to clean up public discourse. I don't care what you believe. You can believe anything you want. That's awesome. What I care about is how you talk about it in public because it affects the democracy, affects the society, affects the kids, affects everybody. Mm -hmm. So can you use ethical techniques to try to convince me to be a white supremacist? <laughs> if you can, I'm here to listen. Mm -hmm. You explained to me why it's better for us to be white supremacists um, than to be multicultural in this country. And I'll listen because you're being ethical about it. You're telling me your, your motives. You're laying out your reasons. You're listening to dialogue. And we can decide uh, as a group, yeah, you know what? I think being uh, just white people in America is the way to go. <laughs> well, if it's you a democracy. These... You could literally vote for that. You could also vote for, hey, it's only Latinos for the next hundred years. Yeah. We can vote anything. Right. But to your to that first part, though, there was a little bit of an uprise from and then the new terminology, the alt-right, you know, they're not, not Nazis. They're not neo-Nazis. They're not skinheads. It's alt-right kind of wearing suits and fancy haircuts and passing through some of those gates. Was it their ethical messaging that got them through those gates? Was it people being inattentive or was it they finally got punched in the face and got shuttered back down into the, the storm drains or wherever it is they exist that people overwhelmingly said, and it doesn't matter how nice you explain that message. We've seen what the ramifications of it are and they are bad. So is, is there any risk like that someone could pass through a gate with you where like, well, they were ethical and like, I guess they made some sense and ah, let them be. Or is there, is there a need to say, this has worked out poorly in the past and I don't care how nice you are about it. I despise you. Uh, again, rhetoricians aren't really about judgment. They're about process. Okay. So I would say, you know, I, I make... Ethically, 
like if we're going to get into the moral outcomes that we all want, mm-hmm. and I've laid this out actually in one of my Substacks, I think, where I was like, here's the country I want. Like I'm very clear about it. Mm-hmm. I want people to be nice to each other. I want everybody to feel op- like there's an open chance. There's open opportunity. It's not all rigged. I want them to do like a lot of jokes. You know, I like creativity. I like innovation. These are things I want in a country. And this whole thing about make America great again. And I'm like, well, according to my definition, America has never been really all that great. Like, here's what a great country looks like. It's super educated. Mm-hmm. It's super helpful. And if you want to do something, it's not hard to do it. And everybody's safe. And everybody feels like, you know, they're taken care of. You know, that sounds like a great country. I don't see it. Like, I keep looking around where to move after I leave Austin. I'm like, man, I really wish there was a place that I'm just like, everything about this place is awesome. (laughs) But I grew up in Kentucky. It was anti-intellectual. And I was an intellectual kid. Mm -hmm. Bad situation. So, to me, like, we're fine just using ethical gates. And if we said, like, yeah, you talked about that in an ethical way, totally respect that. Here's why that idea is wrong. And we reached that conclusion. And now I'd like to do some work on you to bring you over to my set of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's better to have a multicultural society because if it's white supremacist, we don't have, you know, music. <laughs> you know, our music is still polkas. You want a bunch of polka music? Yeah. They, I, it, they rarely bring up... And that's, you know, again, being in that lifeboat with someone, anyone that's experienced other cultures, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I went to this obscure part of the world and was ingratiated into a tribe of people that still lives a certain way. It could be your neighbor two houses down and they eat a traditional type of meal where they sit on their knees and the table's only a foot off the ground and they eat with their hands and you, you experiencing that. Other humans are cool. Other <laughs> cultures are amazing. Yeah. Like, and everybody, if they get it and start experiencing that, just the infusion of the things that they've come up with, and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. It's one of the best human experiences. So I would put that up against, we need to, you know, lock it down because <laughs> they're coming for us. Yeah. I'm like, okay, why do you feel that way? You know, it probably does feel that way. I, there's a lot of traditional cultures that feel encroached upon. Because you know what? They're getting encroached upon. Yeah. That's what the global community does. It interpenetrates cultures. And like, yeah, your culture may go away. I don't know. You know, if it can't compete. <laughs> well, they're very you know, few but you people. you can't force it to still be alive. You have to persuade us and show us its value. Right. Yeah. Not a lot of people skipping along, playing lutes and things like this these days and they, certain things just kind of go away that were like the ultimate mainstream people's look at the germans in oktoberfest like that's this old like <laughs> the way they dress and everything You're like how did that survive well it survived because it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. to drink for an entire month apparently yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the it, it seems like that would be as simple as it all boils down to that just Here's one good example that you just gave. Other cultures are fun. Here's one fun thing I went and did with that culture that you could say, convince me that wasn't fun. And the person you left with- pluck that out as a strategy. Like, that's perfect the way you just said it. Other cultures are fun. That's a proposition. (laughs) That's propositional logic. All right? Now, to do deduction, we got to say, is that true? Yeah. Look at all the stuff that they do. And then if you just get people to experience that deductive logic, so it goes from abstract to concrete, Mm -hmm. then you can convert them. 
Now we've got a nice rhetorical strategy with actual tactics, and it will be effective. So go go do it, David. I like it. That's a good place to, to end on because it, I bet people listening are running through a variety of scenarios. The one, Maybe the, the question would be, how long do I wait? I've, I've befriended this person. They have a hesitant uh, approach toward, you know, the the LGBTQIA plus culture. I want to get them to a, a get together or a gay bar or a parade. How long into it do I take? I guess that's up to them, right? That's where you feel comfortable or where you feel like there's the best chance that, you know, they're not going to go and get a drink spilled on them and be able to go, oh, I'm leaving. I knew this would be bad. How do, you, how do you get someone to go experience another culture that is fun, even if they go in with a very negative mindset, you've gotten them to at least trust you, you know, so like... Well, TikTok. <laughs> you can watch other cultures on TikTok and be like, like, I do this all the time. I follow a bunch of Russians and <laughs> it's in Russian, but like they're Russian comedians as there's a woman who's clearly comic and I have no idea what she's saying, but she's, you know, she, uh, she's really good with costuming. And she really does funny stuff. And I just enjoy, and she never, hardly ever smiles. Very Russian. But it's so funny. And she's so good at it and so well produced that I'm like, oh my God, I'm learning about Russian comedy That's by great. watching this. Yeah. And TikTok's simple. It's right there. It's an easy way to do a positive with uh, social media that could, you know, expand people's cultural experience. And there's not, it's not just, other cultures are fun is one strategy. What I would say is build a rain, like a, a merry-go-round of strategies because that one may not work with everybody. But other cultures, and this is one of the things I said about, um, I really don't think Chappelle is, is ever going to win his argument because he's doing um, comedy about people in pain. Mm-hmm. And that's always difficult to do. Yeah. And it's always going to be problematic. And he does not understand their pain. And he says it during the show. He's like, well, for a long time, I made my living by making fun of white people and like, you know, uh, like talking about black community. And now suddenly I'm talking about LGBT, you know, community. And I'm like, yeah. And you don't know anything about those communities. So you really should stay off this topic. Yeah. Because now you're doing cult uh, comedy about people in pain that you don't understand. And yes, you can still make it funny. And you can rescue things out of there that you can get ethos out of that he does, but you're outside of your field, man. And why are you doing comedy about this? Mm-hmm. You have the right, but you're not going to succeed because you have no legitimacy to be commenting on that culture. It, yeah, I think that's exactly how it, it, the thing you said about your ideal country and it being great. The thing that I, Took I, all of that resonated with me a lot, and especially a culture that's allowed to just be creative. You know that we've got a lot of our other problems solved, and let's stop yammering on about these things that we're we're not just going to get to the bottom of because someone's feelings were hurt, and or because someone, you know, said a thing that we all needed to hear. It just to me that's never going to be it. And you also mentioned uh, the difference between comedy communities, and so some of the more conservative groups. When they don't like it, they'll walk past me and go, God bless you, in the meanest way possible. They don't elaborate. They don't stop and say, like, hey, hey, you were a little off. Whereas people that I've maybe absentmindedly kind of offended, they go, hey, just so you know. And I'll go, oh, thank you. I didn't know that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people don't. That's the best. Now I'm learning. Now, like, this joke doesn't even need to be told. 
doubtful, but at least I go in with the right tools. When you're ultra wealthy and you're not around whatever communities or groups or whoever that you're talking about, you miss on those things. You're not getting that feedback necessarily. That's real dangerous. So it can end up really hurting people's feelings. Yeah. People are very attuned to their culture and they're very attuned to the rhetorics that are coming at their culture. And to get it right, really hard. And I tell my (laughs) daughter this when we're talking about it. I'm like, I don't know anything about the cultures that you've walked in. So if I misstate, if I have trans incompetence or drag incompetence, you got to give me some room. You know, you can't, you can teach me, but uh, people don't learn things because you say them once. Right. And they especially don't learn them at the micro level. And they especially don't learn them when they only hear it one time, you know, so there's, there's too much incompetence here for you to judge me. Just know that I care about other cultures. I care about other people who are having difficult experiences, uh, but this is not my issue. Like I'm never going to get good at this issue. Mm-hmm. I have my own issues. If you want to, you know, walk over here and <laughs> find out what it's like over here. But um, we can't. When you start getting identity politics and cultural politics like that kind of stuff, it gets again very webby and very difficult to negotiate. But you know what? Again, rhetoric offers is, hey, look at this. Look at the ecology make some strong decisions about what you think will work and then do that. So I really like the other cultures are fun. I want everybody <laughs> to go out and import some fun from other cultures into somebody's life that doesn't know that culture and just see what kind of results you can get. That's the best. Dan French, what a great chat and what a perfect. Hopefully everyone was listening to that part directly and specifically because try it out. I wish we had like a forum. We could have everyone. I went and I did this. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully everyone's doing that. Travel, experience other things. Do it safely. It's still a little bit of a COVID risk. Right? A little, a lot. I don't know where we're at these days, but uh, go see other cultures because they're fun. Uh, 21 Coliseums, is it out currently? It is. You can find it. Okay. Just go to Rhetoric Warriors. That's my my site and my podcast and all that that stuff's there. So Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing you on the big news outlets when you are a hot-button guest and developing um, a huge following and I can't get in touch with you. And <laughs> <laughs> but that'll be great. That sounds I, I great. Think, Let's do that. Yeah, that'll be fun. You'll be um, – uh, I just think it's a, a good message that um, certainly could get misconstrued, but if people ap- uh, apply the right – approach to it such a great way to to process information and and uh, view the world and stuff so thanks for sharing it because i man i really didn't know much about it so this is this is great good to good to chat a bit yeah most people when they hear i have a phd in rhetoric just don't even believe it's real so <laughs> you know we at least established there is a tradition of it in the world so like that's not real <laughs> turns out it is yeah goes back to the greeks fool that's what you should say to them <laughs> Fool? Yeah, I'll start using that a lot. End it with fool. That's good. That'll get people on your side, ingratiate them to you. That's good reality show politics right there, right? (laughs) Just insult somebody, and then you're off and running. (laughs) All right. Thanks, dude. Yep. Enjoyed it. Smart guy, that Dan French. Rhetoric. Just what a... What a uh, concept. And I'm sure if you're listening, you're like, dude, you didn't know what rhetoric was? I suppose I didn't know it in in the conventional sense. As I mentioned during our chat... I would look back years later and think of like emotional intelligence, think of situations in my life where I had 
applied or not applied it. Or I think where most people can see that is where when someone else is not picking up on your cues, you're like, man, they have no emotional intelligence. Uh, it's a noticeable thing, but uh, you have to be exposed to it or know what it is to then uh, be looking for it. And rhetoric, as you realize, and probably all of you are well-versed in it, uh, think about it all the time. I think uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're lucky if you don't, because then you, you there's a better chance you're just kind of authentically being yourself. Or maybe you recognize some of the things that you were doing that um, maybe you were trying to put one over on people or something. Who knows? But uh, these are all things that are covered uh, frequently in the Substack that Dr. Dan, you can follow him on Twitter at Rhetoric War, which is short for Rhetoric Warriors, which is his podcast. And uh, you can stay up to date with all kinds of different uh, rhetoric information, thoughts, uh, his input, very knowledgeable fellow, obviously has a PhD in the subject. And uh, you can really go down a long train of thought. Like he mentioned that his brain is always kind of working on stuff or you can avoid it. It's your mind. You can take it where you want. And I think that's a thing in society that we see when people are just vegging out watching dumb television, that it's a big world out there. You can be as imaginative as you'd like, or you can kind of just drone in and sit in traffic and pay bills and laugh at jokes about like faking out the trash and things to do with spouses, etc. Or the world can be a little bit bigger to you. It's up to you. But I enjoyed rhetoric and I think it lends itself to a lot of those discussions. Anyway, moving on. Thanks to Dan for putting this show together. Thanks to all of you who support the show on Patreon and or if you have subscribed or reviewed on any of the podcast apps that you use, it really does help. I uh, typically in the past have been like, eh, whatever. But I think it would be nice to try to um, put more into this show. And I realize that getting more from it is a good incentive to do that, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, in the past, I was just content to just, you know, put it out there. But I found, obviously, uh, during the pandemic and things that um, it was something I could kind of easily step away from if needed. For those of you that listen, I didn't, you know, it's not like I heard a bunch of you being like, I need you, man. But I imagine there are maybe a few of you that were like, dang it, I wish that podcast was still around. That would make this pandemic a little easier. So if you are one of those people, if it does have value in your life, even for like $2 a month, you can support the show. And uh, it goes a long way. It just reiterates or reinforces to me that it has some value, which then enthuses me and motivates me to make more of them and do a better job at them, etc. So I'll discontinue that spiel, but, and I, I'll try not to do that every episode also. That's exhausting. Okay, let's get out of here. This is a song that Dan picked out. You know, he's, I wouldn't say he's hit and miss, but sometimes he'll say, I don't even play like 50% of the ones he sends me. Not that he has a bad ear, but just, we're different. He's a musician. He knows music better than I do. And sometimes he'll send stuff that's maybe, a little too poppy or a little too cheery or just something that I'm like, I don't know if that fits the space cave vibe. Whereas this one I think does. I hope you like it as well. It's by Ruth Venn. It's called Don't Keep It To Yourself. Thanks for stopping by the space cave. I cannot believe what you just whispered in my ear I never would have guessed it You've been keeping that to yourself for too long 
You're unpredictable. You keep me guessing, guessing, guessing. I don't want you thinking you can expect me over any time. I don't expect it. Breathe the 